HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to Heritage Radio Network on tour. We are coming at you tonight from the Herbst Theater in San Francisco, where the Good Food Awards are about to take place. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of Heritage Radio Network. And I'm Kat Johnson, the Communications Director at HRN. And we are here before the award ceremony kicks off with a very special guest. Tonight we have Soleil Ho. She is a former chef, the brand new restaurant critic for the San Francisco San Francisco Chronicle, and the founder of the Racist Sandwich Podcast. Welcome, Soleil. Hi. So you are brand newly arrived to San Francisco. What has your last week been like? (laughs) So today is Friday. I got here on Tuesday. And since about an hour after my plane touched down from Minneapolis, I've just been running around to apartment showings, open houses, eating just crappy food, <laughs> just, you know, hustling to find a place to live because that was the most pertinent thing on the agenda. And you just signed a lease, right? I did, just in time. So I actually have a place to live next week. And I start my job on Monday, so it's going to be really hectic and everything happening all at once as these things kind of go. Well, congratulations and welcome. <laughs> I'm glad it all worked out in time. Yeah, I mean, it would be funny if the restaurant critic for the Chronicle was living in a tent, you know, by the river. I well, mean, I mean, you're not the housing critic after all. Right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> what are you most looking forward to as you kind of get into the swing of things with the Chronicle? Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing more of the Bay Area in general, not even just San Francisco, but the East Bay, the South Bay, the Peninsula, like all of these regions that haven't really been covered seriously by local news. Um, So just finding out what's there and of course hearing from people about their favorite places and checking those out. I think I'm looking, really looking forward to that. What will be sort of the geographic boundaries for your beat? Um, really, it's the Bay Area, which is huge. <laughs> um, just wherever humanly possible I can actually access. Now, the critic before you that just retired, I think he'd been at the Chronicle for over 30 years. So this is going to be in many ways for the San Francisco and Bay Area, like a real breath of fresh air just by the fact that it's a new critic. But you have a very unique background, I think, when it comes to major publications, restaurant critics. So can you talk a little bit about your kind of culinary journey and where you're coming from when you're going to start writing about restaurants here? Yeah. So one thing just to start off with, I think it's really 
funny and interesting that the former critic, Michael Bauer, started his job at the Chronicle before I was born, like right before I was born. <laughs> so that should tell you a lot about like what it means for it to change hands in this way. It's like a complete cut almost as far as generations. <laughs> um, but yeah, so after I graduated from college in 2009, I jumped headlong into the food industry. I started working for a farm, uh, an organic CSA that sold vegetables. And then after that, I started working in restaurants because those were the jobs I could get at the time as a college grad competing with everyone else for the same sort of entry-level jobs. And so not many people were trying to work in kitchens. So I did that. And at the same time, I started interning for a online publication called The Heavy Table in Minneapolis that covered the upper Midwest, was super local, and really interested in like advocating for these places that were overlooked because Minnesota was flyover country. And so that was my entree into food media as a participant. But prior to that, even in my childhood, I grew up in New York City and I would read Ruth Reichel. I would read Gail Green. I would read all of these food critics when I was in like elementary school, I was so invested in learning about the restaurants in my neighborhood because I grew up in Manhattan and Brooklyn. And of course, these were very dynamic locations and was of very much interest, you know, in the food media. And so I just, it's always been my bread and butter. It's always been something that I cared a lot about. And food has always been a way for me to understand the world and understand not even just my immediate world and what was happening in my neighborhood, but just like my relationship to the world as a person, um, as a Vietnamese American person, as a woman, you know, as someone of like the, the millennial generation. So yeah, I mean, for me, it's of second nature to think of food as a way to talk about these things. Speaking of millennials, are you maybe <laughs> one of the first, if not the first millennial food critics for a major U.S. publication? I don't, I mean, I can't say for sure, but I think so. I would think so as well. And I, I wonder if that's going to, I think speaking as a millennial as well, it's going to be kind of a relief to have someone <laughs> with a voice who's like speaking more to me. And I think that we've, our generation's almost kind of like baffled a lot of writers and, and people trying to figure out like, you see all these pieces about millennials want to spend all their money on avocado toast. And it's just like, you just don't get us. So I'm excited to see kind of, that perspective come into play and are you excited about being able to write about things and not just be complaining about millennials eating avocado <laughs> toast i mean i think i am probably one of the few millennials in america with the power to actually kill applebee's and you know they've been blaming it on us already so why not yeah i could be the final stroke <laughs> <laughs> disclaimer um I also want to ask you about, just kind of before we talk more about San Francisco and everything, one of the last pieces that you wrote prior to getting the job was about uh, Andrew Zimmern's uh -huh. new concept, Lucky Cricket. Mm -hmm. um, how has the response been to that piece? Um, it was really wild, actually. So for me, as someone who writes criticism of restaurants and pop culture, I try really hard to be nice, believe it or not. Like I, I agonize over accuracy and meanness and like, is what I'm writing actually based in truth? And like, is this something that other people will experience, right? Um, because I think as, as a younger woman, I'm like very obsessed with being likable, you know, to my detriment. And so I was really surprised by how 
people read it as a as a takedown and as like oh she's putting them him on blast and you know people were very excited about that <laughs> I was like oh man I was just trying to be like I pull my punches actually um in the interest of being really balanced and having a broader thing to say about this rather than like I'm mad I never write because I'm mad and so <laughs> that was surprising but also speaks to I think the lack of just nuanced cultural analysis in food writing at large um very few people, there's a handful of people, maybe three, right, um, were able to write about that restaurant in that way with that level of understanding of like all the layers of what was wrong with that whole story. So uh, this is sort of a, a question that is related to this story and also to your podcast, but how much do you think, and in what ways is the conversation around cultural appropriation in food changing? Because it was a relatively new conversation for mainstream media a few years ago, but now I think we're hearing a lot more about it, but we're hearing about it in different ways. Right. Um, gosh. So I would trace the sort of um, introduction of cultural appropriation in food to 2013 so yeah that like sense of it being a really recent thing makes a lot of sense um i would trace it to mickey kendall the chicago-based writer who initially used the term food gentrification and gentrification as a really interesting way to conceptualize of this process that she saw happening everywhere especially in regard to black american food um and so I think since then, and she's like super popular on Twitter, like the, the idea has permeated and like trickled outward and yeah, more people are talking about it. And I've, at the beginning, I was also one of the people who was talking about it because I found that concept really resonant. Um, and I think what I find fascinating about it is the defensiveness and this is what Racist Sandwich is all about, right? This is what our name is about because people still have a hard time grasping the politics of food and thinking about it as something that, you know, can be appropriated and for, you know, for profit by people who historically have profited from the exploitation of other people's resources. And so we still get the question of like, so you're saying white people can't eat burritos. And of course, like it's the most disingenuous question um, but it speaks to, I think, the slowness of it to kind of really seep through as far as the like deeper meaning. You know, the, the shallow meaning is pretty easy to understand. People are eating things that aren't from their culture. Um, but the reasons why that matters to look at and also sort of what it's a symptom of hasn't quite really sunk in, but we're working on it. Yeah, what, what's the next step there, like the next um, milestone in that movement? Well, I think the next one would be just getting people to understand that this is about capital. This is about money. This is about the racial wealth gap. And every time I've been asked to come on the radio or whatever to talk about it, I try to steer towards that. Like, who is making money and whose labor are we as a culture, as people, diners, okay with compensating more, you know? That also speaks to, and I'm blanking right now on, on which paper it was, but there was the, I think it was Washington Post, just changed the name of what was called like, essentially like a cheap eats list. And it was, and this is something that Deep Tran in LA talked to me about last year as well. Why are we making cheap eats lists that are primarily focused on uh, foods of various 
um, you know, countries and ethnicities. Um, how do you feel about that? And is that playing into some, you know, what you're saying about we've got to change the way we're writing and talking about other cuisines? Um, yeah. So that was Tim Carmen at the Washington Post. So yes, you're right on. Uh, and I feel like a lot of critics and food writers have been having this conversation internally. Um, also, I think it relates to the term ethnic food. I think this is a conversation that's been happening a lot. I don't use that term because it just doesn't make sense because we all have ethnicities, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Um, so on a practical level, it just means, you know, it just reinforces the idea of whiteness as something that is free from race or like outside of race or transcends race. And that's awful. That doesn't make any sense. It's white supremacists. You know, as a writer, I at least have the power to choose the words I use. So let's do that. Um, as far as cheap eats go, yeah, like it does set a hierarchy and a binary in in food media. And I, I, I know that it's more often than not, as Tim Carmen points out in his column, the types of cuisines that get included into cheap eats are not the French restaurants, right? They're not the new American restaurants. Um, they're not the restaurants that have historically been the center of like power in the culinary world and the center of like all the etiquette and all of the routine and all of the tradition. Um, and it is in its way, it's like, um, what is it? Like, what's that word? Gosh, what's that phrase for when someone compliments you, but it's like not, that's kind of bad. Like an underhanded compliment. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, and yeah, it goes back to the question of labor. Like if you have a reputation as a cheap eats restaurant, then how are you going to justify raising the prices so you can pay the workers more? Um, we just had this really significant case in the Bay area where people who had, um, a chain of restaurants or they, it was a restaurant group just lost a lawsuit because they were exploiting their workers heavily and not paying them. And they owe like a million dollars in back wages. And these, this is like, you know, um, Asian restaurateurs who probably weren't, I'm not, I'm not saying they're free from blame, obviously, but like people probably accepted the level of like the level of pricing on their menu and didn't realize that that, that it was what they were kind of paying into. Right. It was like, Oh, like I can get, um, General Tso's chicken for $5, but like what's happening to the workers, right? And so there's all these things that kind of trickle out from the idea of cheap eats that aren't really serving people, you know, um, and people besides diners. And that's what I mean. Will kind of thinking about labor and workforce in the um, Bay Area restaurant scene, like will that play a big part of the way you're going to report? Yeah, I think so, because there is a labor shortage, as there is everywhere in the U.S., as far as the restaurant world goes. And, you know, because the restaurant world cannot compete with hotels or cruise ships or these really stable income hour places, right, where you can work nine to five and go home and see your family, the the hours aren't still aren't changing. Um, the mental health care is still really awful. And it's it's hard to find people right constant people and so if i find that a restaurant is inconsistent and i'm i'm assuming because that's been my experience in other places too that food is inconsistent or simple that's because they can't find people to execute high level food um and if that that to me is a symptom of this deeper problem of just like we are not ready to compensate restaurant workers for the work they do or you know if you're a restaurant worker or if your employees live out 
in the burbs and their commute here is an hour and a half. If the train, if something happens with the train, they can't show up to work, then you have to deal with that too, right? Um, I've been that worker. I've had those commutes and it is like, it's very tempting to just throw in the towel and be like, I'm not showing up. I can't do this anymore, you know? Um, and I can tell that in this area in particular where people who are working class have to live out in the outer rings, it's even worse, you know? And is that a reason that you're excited to kind of talk about places outside of the city as well? Because that's where people are living. That's where people are eating. That's where people are having, you know, downtime. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've said this before, but I'm so invested in thinking about like, where does everyone else eat? Right? Like I have been the person I've been on food stamps. Like I have lived in poverty and I understand that you still go out to eat, you know, like you still need that little bit of like restoration at a restaurant. Um, and so it's gotta, gotta be a good one, <laughs> at least for me with my sort of like, um, with my sorts of values and ideas about what's a good time. And so I want to find those places too. So that kind of leads to a similar question, but I think when a lot of people read, um, food criticism, they have in their mind the certain person that you might be writing for, historically especially. So who are you going to be writing for when you're doing restaurant criticism for the SF Chronicle? Well, I mean, you know, it feels really pat to say everyone, so I won't say that. <laughs> but I do, I think, the work that I've produced historically has been for people who are like me, you know, people who are millennials, who have who value experience, who really want to try something new and are open, but, um, you know, maybe don't know everything, <laughs> uh, but want to learn. And, you know, as a critic, you're supposed to be open to every cuisine. You're supposed to be really curious about what other people eat. And so hopefully that will be the kind of person who reads my work too. Or people that maybe haven't read, res read restaurant criticism before, but find that, oh, I'm going to get something out of this. Right, and yeah. And might not expect to. Yeah, and I, I would assume that the same audience that found me through Racist Sandwich will be reading, you know, my restaurant criticism because there are people who probably haven't felt much validation from food media before, you know, just because it is written for a certain kind of person, right? It's written for upper middle class white people with, you know, lots of leisure time, and, you know, who don't know what pho is and are willing to put quinoa in it, like that sort of thing. So have you seen that? Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not writing for the person who would accept that. Yeah, I'm scarred just from hearing that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so speaking of sort of other forms of food media, can you talk about your um, comic novel what am i trying to graphic say graphic novel, novel sorry um your graphic novel that came out in december oh sure so before i start have either of you read it no but i just found out about it today and now oh. i can't wait to <laughs> okay um so yeah at the end of december i had a graphic novel come out called meal it was written in conjunction with an illustrator and the primary writer blue Delaquanti, who is a wonderful wonderful artist and so it is, it was Blue's idea, and it's about entomophagy, or the eating of insects, and a group of people's attempt to open an edible insect restaurant in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And so it's fictional, but it's very much about um, 
the insect trade and what it means to introduce edible insects to a new audience. There's romance, there's hand-holding, it's very cute, there's tacos. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really fun. I can't wait to check it out. <laughs> I, like, I saw it and I was like, oh my god, what is this? Do they have it at Omnivore Books here in SF? I um, am going to try to get the books there. Yeah, but you can purchase them online. Powell's has them online, and um, there's also digital copies that you can also purchase as well. Well, it's only a matter of time before Omnivore has it, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Get on board. Um, (laughs) So so you're going to be moving soon. What's, like, the first couple weeks going to look like for you? Um, How are you going to... How, I'm, I'm curious to know like how you're going to start seeking out restaurants. Are you going to take recommendations from people? Or are you going to just hit the ground running to DIY? <laughs> so, you know, my process for finding restaurants to review is pretty similar to my process for finding restaurants to eat at in general as a normal human. And so I ask for, I ask for recommendations. I read other people and their work. I'm certainly, I've been in the process of reading the backlog of reviews in the Chronicle and East Bay Express and other publications in the area. And just talking to I was talking to my future landlady about where she likes to eat yesterday and she's Russian and so she had her own like you know particular tastes and things that she was looking for and so yeah you know just I have to play catch up because I you know being or having the budget to actually go to a restaurant and order as much as you're supposed to as a critic and like go multiple times and do that like I haven't even begun to be able to do that yet so I have a lot of time it's like train for that I think <laughs> I mean that's that's real work um are you obviously you don't need to like tell us now or give us any spoilers but are you looking forward to re-reviewing anything that's been reviewed um in the past on in the chronicle yes that's all she's gonna say <laughs> yes um, I'm excited about that as well um and then I was asking you earlier if, I mean, obviously a lot of people that listen to HRN are familiar with Racist Sandwich Podcast. Um, are you going to keep podcasting in the future? I think so. I really love it. I love, I mean, I love using the equipments. I love using microphones and I love interviewing people, but it's going to have to be really different just because my relationships with restaurant people are going to necessarily change because of this job. And so there will be other stories I can possibly do I would love to do stuff with the Chronicle so that because you know I think there's a lot of potential for that hyper local stuff I hope that a lot of people out like just around the world do their own projects like that and I hope that at the very least Racist Sandwich has empowered people to think about their own ideas for podcasts or like any sort of content creation regarding you know the work that we did because I've heard from so many people who all of a sudden now want to start their own podcasts about food and race. You know, one person wants to do it all about Minnesota and one person wants to do it all about Missouri. And just like, that's great. You know, um, at the very least, I want people to steal our idea because it's a good one. And there's so many stories out there that need to be covered in that way. That's awesome. Well, I think that about wraps it up. We're going to head off now and go watch the Good Food Awards. Um, Soleil, thank you so much for sitting down with us. We're very, very excited to read all the work you do in the SF Chronicle. Thank you. All right. Um, this has been special broadcast of Heritage Radio Network with the new San Francisco Chronicle restaurant editor, Soleil Ho. I'm Kat Johnson. I'm Katie Mosman-Wattler.
Thanks for listening.